0: chapter three of a story of love by francis cassilli this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three my friend divine friendships between men we readily understand and we have all experienced them in varying degrees of intensity and permanency but does it occur to us that there is such a thing on earth as divine friendship often indeed we have heard that we are friends of god but does the phrase convey any definite clear meaning or is it to us a mere conventional expression another way of saying that we are in the state of grace or that we are free from mortal sin inspired writers do not choose their words at random From Holy Writ, its assertions and phraseology, the theologians draw a great part of the dogmas of Revelation. Its pages, as interpreted by the councils of the Church, the teachings of the sovereign pontiffs, and the commentaries of the Fathers, give us most of what we know about Revelation and divine things. In many places, Scripture tells us that God is the friend of the just man the psalmist says to me thy friends o god are made exceedingly honorable we are informed that they who use wisdom become the friends of god or according to a closer rendering of the latin text become sharers in the friendship of god abraham in both the old and new testaments is called the friend of god st john in his touching account of the last supper records christ's memorable words i will not now call you servants for the servant knoweth not what his lord doth but i have called you friends because all things whatsoever i have heard of my father i have made known to you thus we have the term friend of god applied repeatedly and insistently to those who were pleasing to him are we to imagine that in all these cases the inspired writers and christ himself intended the expression to be taken only figuratively in a vague shadowy way or did they mean what they said and said what they meant when christ spoke the words you are my friends if you do the things that i command you he evidently intended to exact obedience from his apostles could he then in justice after they had given generous and entire obedience to his commands say to them you have indeed done literally what i commanded you but i did not mean my part of the compact to be literal so i will fulfil my promise only in a figurative way by being to you not a real friend but only a sort of benevolent master or overlord. The very formulating of this question shows its absurdity, since we know that God does not, like man, promise and not fulfill, and that he never suffers himself to be outdone in generosity. Moreover, the general rule for the interpretation of Scripture is that the direct and obvious sense of the words is to be taken unless there be good reason in the context or in the nature of the matter treated to read a tropical meaning into them. In the text cited, no hint is given for suspecting any other than a literal meaning of friendship, nor does any sufficient reason appear for doubting the possibility of God's being a real and true friend to us. The Council of Trent, in its decree concerning the nature of justification, takes this view of divine friendship, for without qualification it says, by justification man from unjust becomes just, and from an enemy a friend. And again, having therefore been thus justified and made the friends of God and members of his household god then is a real friend of the just with all that a true genuine friendship implies to doubt it were to doubt revelation itself we may now proceed to see how the nature and qualities of friendship as outlined in the preceding chapters are verified between god and us friendship is mutual love and christ himself teaches us that the first and greatest commandment is to love god with all our heart and soul and this love must be for his own sake on account of himself and his infinite perfections and amiability this precept is reasonable and with the help of grace not over difficult since our very nature prompts us to love and esteem one who is every way worthy, even apart from the consideration whether he has rendered us any personal service. We then can and must love God for his own sake, and that he loves us is evidenced by his words and deeds, and by the whole scheme of creation and redemption, by his daily solicitude and care over us. And this love is not for his own benefit or emolument, since he needs nothing of us, and we can give him nothing that he has not. So his charity cannot be for his own sake, hence it must be for ours. And here the question naturally presents itself how God can find anything in us, to draw his complaisance. it is the universal law of intelligent being to love itself and what pertains to it god too comes under this law or rather we should say it proceeds and springs from him he does and must love himself and what belongs to him now it is not hard to show that we belong to him and by many titles we are his creatures the work of his hands the offspring so to speak of his wisdom and counsel we are made to his own image and likeness and so share in his essence and being so far indeed as limited and created perfection may partake of the infinite and we need not delay here on the manifestation of his predilection for us in the work of redemption so in loving us God is only loving what pertains and belongs to him, a reflection and embodying of himself. We are his, and so intimately, that as long as we are faithful and true, he cannot discard or forget us. We all know from experience the depth and intensity, the strength and sweetness of a mother's love for her child. Others may wonder what she discovers in her infant that makes her forget and sacrifice self for its sake. She loves it without reasoning why, because it is her own. And seeing in it a multitude of perfections to which others are blind, she cherishes it for its own sake. And God has compared his love of us to that of a mother, and pronounced it even greater so that if it were possible for her to forget the child of her womb, yet will not he forsake us. And though mother and father abandon us, he will take us up, and in return he expects us to love him more than our father and mother, even if necessary leaving them for his name's sake. True love, then, between God and man may and can exist but friendship to be complete requires as we have seen the mutual knowledge of this affection each friend must know the existence of the other's love now how can we be sure of a reciprocal love between god and us since no one knows whether he is worthy of love or hated no man can be absolutely sure that he is in god's grace but even in human friendship A friend's love is often known more by his manner of acting than by the testimony of words. If he acts kindly and generously towards us, showers favors upon us, and takes pleasure in our company, we do not think of questioning his friendship, but take it for granted, since loving deeds can spring only from a loving heart. When the earth is flooded with light, no one searches the sky to discover if the sun be shining in like manner the sincere christian who is conscious of having done nothing to forfeit god's friendship who ever strives to obey his law who feels within the peace that passeth all understanding and beholds graces constantly lavished upon him can have the highest probability amounting to a sort of moral certainty that god loves him and this is sufficient for friendship in this life the friendship of the wayfarer on earth cannot be as perfect as that of the possessor in heaven for besides our uncertainty of mind there is always the danger of losing it but when the veil shall be removed All doubt shall disappear in the sunburst of vision, and fear shall give way to the joy of possession. The effect of love sometimes becomes so intense in the souls of holy persons while still upon earth that it seems a very fine fire within them. Spiritual writers tell us of the sixth degree of the mystic union, called the flame of love, st stanislaus consumed with this flame was forced to run out into the wintry air to seek relief from the scorching heat within his breast this mysterious flame burned even the skin upon the breast of gemma st paul of the cross exclaimed i feel my entrails parched i thirst and wish to drink but to extinguish this burning i would wish to drink torrents of fire and the seventh degree of the mystic union is the thirst and anguish of love father scaramelli a standard jesuit author on this subject says of it the anguish of love is a living and ardent desire of god loved and tasted but not yet possessed by the soul the continuance or duration of its pangs which form and establish themselves so to say in the very marrow of the soul is called the thirst of love blessed mary of the angels was a victim of this parching thirst which copious draughts of icy water could not allay human language simply stammers and halts when it essays to speak of these sublime heights of love which only they who have seen can understand this was the experience of st paul who tells us that when wrapped in vision he heard secret words that it is not given to man to utter end of chapter three